Next weekend is the 10th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina barreling into the Gulf Coast. New Orleans levee system could not protect the city and 682 were killed, many in their homes. As the waters rose, there were many desperate calls for help. Some have never been heard until now. 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 What could you hear in people's voices? Fear. Terror. I need someone out here, man. I'm going to die in this panic. Looking at how the CIA talks about the importance of putting prisoners into a state of shock, because when they're in a state of shock, they're not able to protect their interests. They become childlike and regressed. The, the exploitation of crisis and shock has very consciously been used by radical free marketeers. You hear it over and over on these 911 calls. People were on their own. years after the frightening experience of September the 11th, Americans have every right to expect a more effective response in a time of emergency. What the Bush administration did after September 11th. When the federal government fails to meet such an obligation. They essentially launched a new economy. The day this crisis started, New Orleans had more than 100 911 dispatchers. Tonight, just 15. If you think of it as a business plan, it could hardly be more profitable. Could you imagine getting a call where someone is saying that they're trapped. There's no way out. And just stay on the phone with me because I know this is it. I, as president, am responsible for the problem. What they were building was a permanent new part of the economy, a privatized security state. And for the solution. And for the solution. For the solution. Instead of trying to escape reality, plunge into the flesh of the world. If you call yourself a poet, sing it. Don't state it. Don't let it be said of you that sluggish imagination drowned out the slush of your heart. Bring together again the telling of a tale and the living voice. Be a teller of great tales, even the darkest. In the California of the past, if you'd gone just west of Los Angeles at the right time, you could have seen the Santa Monica Mountains covered in spots of concentrated yellow. It was like a giant washed their hands in bright paint and shook them off to dry over the hills. Now, it's not like spots of paint at all. It's a coat of paint, or rather a straitjacket. The bright yellow you're seeing is, counterintuitively, black mustard. It's a hardy, invasive weed. Fittingly enough, it was brought to the coast by Spanish colonists who wanted to cultivate it and sell it as a spice until it spread beyond their expectation and they basically lost control of it. Black mustard is particularly damaging to California for multiple reasons. While it doesn't actually burn that easily on its own, it is susceptible to windborne fires, which is pretty much all California fires. Further, it's strong enough to suffer the summer heat and drought and still pop back up after spending a few months brown and desiccated. But because there's so much of it now, it presents those windborne fires with an uninterrupted path for spreading in all directions while it's in its dry dormancy. On top of that, the stalks of the black mustard plant are relatively tall, providing what firefighters refer to as fire ladders for fire to climb up from the ground and onto surrounding trees. To wrap this up in a nice infuriating bow, mustard chokes out native plants and grows back faster than they do in high fire areas. This is because black mustard releases from its roots an allelopathic chemical. This chemical makes it incredibly difficult for the seeds of other plants to grow. So really, 
It's not just that black mustard is able to muscle out any current residents of the area it wishes to invade, but the plant also creates an environment, a system, in which it becomes increasingly easy for it to do so. Imagine if some relative malevolent force were introduced to your home, your neighborhood, your city, where once you might have had the comfort of knowing that you had a certain security in times of hardship, you now find that a car accident, a medical emergency, or even basic groceries might demolish that. You might have had a child with the expectation that the local schools were safe, cared for, and publicly funded. Instead, you find that your taxes no longer go towards schools, and the government somehow doesn't have the budget for upkeep. Your options now, if you're lucky, are embarrassingly deficient public schools or one of the conveniently recent and incredibly expensive private or charter schools. Most people in the U.S. believe that if a storm knocked out their power or access to water or destroyed their roads, the city government would come fix it, and they'd never have to worry about it. In small enough instances, this is certainly the case. But what happens when huge sections of a city, or even an entire city's infrastructure, are disrupted by something as devastating as a hurricane? What happens when the California soil is rendered toxic by an invading plant. The hurricane and the plant are acts of nature, or at least accidental, to be sure. There's no evil to be found in the soil or the storm. But what if someone were to take advantage of the vulnerability they result in? And what if someone were to cause it? What worries me is that America's kind of lost its sense of the future right now. The idea is the future's going to be the collapse of empire or the rise of the zombies or something that wipes us all out. Superman's on it forever. Superman, as far as I'm concerned, uh, they saved my life. Grim, totalitarian police state in Britain of the unreachably far future, like 1997. Comic book artists were not happy with Warhol or with McIntyre or any of the pop artists because they said, they took our imagery and we got paid page rate. Who is Nick Fury? And why is he the nexus of the Ultimates. Forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but yet again, 99% of those familiar with Nick Fury know him from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. They understand Fury to be some sort of nebulously tasked agent. His duty is to protect someone from something, and it's obviously coincidence that that someone usually happens to be the United States, known in the movies as the world, while the something is more often than not foreign terrorists with ill-gotten superpowers. The perfect adversaries for a super spy. I guess I got the part because Mark Miller and some other people decided when they created the ultimate step. Nick Fury was physically me. Although the Nick Fury of the Ultimates is pretty much one-to-one -one with the Nick Fury of the MCU, the original Nick Fury shares only a few commonalities with them. One he doesn't share is skin color. I'm not sure I remember giving anybody the rights to use my image. The original Nick Fury is a Lily White World War II sergeant with a penchant for pungent cigars. His first appearance was in Jack Kirby's Sergeant Fury and His Howling Commandos, number one, from 1963. His first appearance as a CIA spook, the version of him that would eventually morph into his now omnipresent director of S.H.I.E.L.D. role, 
was seven months later in Fantastic Four number 21, one of the goofiest and most wonderful comic books I have ever read. In it, the Fantastic Four square off with the Hate Monger, a villain in what can only be described as a purple Ku Klux Klan robe and hood who's been whipping crowds into frenzied orgies of xenophobia all over the United States. Turns out he's using his H-ray to blast the more animalistic parts of people's brains into overdrive, amplifying all their fears, qualms, and minor annoyances. After he turns it on the Fantastic Four at a rally in New York, they all bicker amongst each other until they almost come to blows and end up going their separate ways. Nick Fury shows up to Mr. Fantastic's laboratory and tells him about how the U.S. has been pouring billions of dollars into the South American country of San Gusto to, quote, make it a showplace of democracy, which had me howling like one of Fury's commandos, of course. Get it? Oh, now I do. Fury contends that a revolution in San Gusto would upset the balance of power in South America, and obviously, he means the balance of power between communists and capitalists. The money being funneled that he's referring to is part of any number of violent fascist initiatives the U.S. contrived and executed in South America in the second half of the 20th century. Operation Brother Sam, Operation Condor, the implementation of Pinochet, the overthrow of Arbenz, all of these come to mind. Anyway, the Fantastic Four and Nick Fury end up, of course, going to South America to stop this revolution being spearheaded by the hate monger. They overcome the effects of the H-Ray and take him, and thus the revolution, down as a team. Turns out, I kid you not, that the hate monger, the leader of this unspecified but ostensible communist revolution in South America, is none other than, and I can't believe I'm about to say this, anyone who's read this issue is probably beside themselves with laughter right now, Adolf Hitler, you know, the number one enemy of communism. Not only is the ideology of this comic nonsensical, but it also displays a 100% misunderstanding of the role of the CIA when Nick Fury tells the hate monger that the CIA hasn't stopped him until now because he hadn't been messing with the United States. And the CIA isn't allowed to interfere with other countries. <laughs> of course, he'd been touring the United States for months, according to earlier pages in the comic. So we can assume that Fury means messing with the United States only in terms of disrupting a potential client state of theirs in San Gusto. The whole thing is truly absurd. It plays philosophical pinball with anti-fascism and anti-communism in baffling ways. But I'm not here to talk about that ridiculous comic. I'm here to talk about how a character from it relates to this ridiculous comic. Fury's transition from military in Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos to intelligence in Fantastic Four often gets overlooked and left out of retellings or popular understandings of the character. Because the Second World War no longer fits into a timeline dictated by the human lifespan. Fury, a normal, super-powerless human, can't have fought in Germany and then have been made a modern-day secret agent anymore. I haven't done the deepest of dives into the various updates to Fury's history, so please write in if you'd like to contribute. But it's easy to imagine that any reconstruction of the character would have to omit most notions of a war record, since World War II was the last war that the U.S. has fought in that has been pop-culturally agreed upon to be good and necessary. Lauding Fury as a war hero from Vietnam wouldn't work in the 90s. Gushing about his record in the Gulf War wouldn't have worked in the 2000s or 2010s. And if he'd been involved in the invasion of Iraq, it would almost certainly be glossed over or be made into some sort of 
pathos for the character these days. There seems to be a general understanding, when people actually stop to think about these things, that the United States hasn't been involved in a good war in quite a while. But a broader connection among these individual shameful acts, Korea, Vietnam, Grenada, Panama, the Gulf War, Yugoslavia, Afghanistan, Iraq, to name a small few, still eludes too many. Why did the United States attempt to violate and destroy these countries, these nations that had as much, if not more, right to exist than the U.S. itself? Why does it continue to dominate Africa and Southeast Asia? What is the larger project involved here? What are its goals? If you take away anything from this season, I hope it's this. Governments that operate in service of a capitalist mode of production have spent the last century at least expanding their, quote, free markets past their own borders by invading other countries. They brutalize those populations with the most modern and sophisticated war machines ever created. And they set up and pay off puppet governments that are happy to ravage the local environments for resources and to terrorize their citizens into accepting working conditions with such few protections and meager wages that they're basically legal slaves. To all of my American, Canadian, and European listeners right now, all of you, this is how you get your food. This is how you get your clothing. This is how you get your televisions your phones, your laptops, and even the very content you use those things to watch. This is how your cars are made, and it's extra bad when it comes to hybrids and electric ones. Imperialist nations like the United States must expand and dominate. If they didn't, they wouldn't, by definition, be imperialist. Your taxes are used to subsidize this terror and violence. Your taxes are used to hurt people and destroy the world. America is actually the bad guy, and everyone understands this, except Americans. Most Americans. Although it was just one of so many heinous and unforgivable acts carried out by the US government in service of capital, the invasion of Iraq represents an escalation of the cynicism and sheer sociopathy that has characterized the country's foreign policy for the last hundred plus years. I can remember when we invaded. I was walking through the living room where my parents were watching the news. I didn't really pick up on what was happening until I noticed that my folks were glued to the screen. My mom was leaning forward with her chin in her hand and her elbow on her knee. My dad had his arms crossed and was tapping one foot. Normally, my parents would listen to music while they talked and cooked. They've never been big TV people. I asked what was wrong. They said, we've just invaded Iraq. I asked why. We don't know. And now, of course, we do. It was because of 9-11, or rather the opportunity 9-11 represented. An unknown force devastated Manhattan, and the government and its corporate leaders used the terror to create conditions that would justify an invasion they'd been obliquely plotting since the late 1970s. The military budget ballooned. Private contractors for security, consultation, education, energy independence, and basically every aspect of our godforsaken society swarmed on our already weakened infrastructure like termites. In essence, the terror attacks on the World Trade Center were a major boon for the likes of Donald Rumsfeld and Eric Prince in much the same way that a Hulk rampage on Manhattan would be for people like Nick Fury and Tony Stark. As we open the comic, we're greeted with a full-page illustration of the damage to Manhattan the Hulk has already caused. It's not super graphic for two reasons. We're looking at it from way up in the air, 
and most of the view is blocked by multiple helicopters, presumably belonging to S.H.I.E.L.D., which is essentially the nascent superhero branch of the U.S. military, including one carrying an already enlarged giant man who's astounded that the Hulk has wrought all this havoc in only 10 minutes. Nick Fury, head of S.H.I.E.L.D., briefs Giant Man on the situation. The Hulk has killed dozens of people, including a quite literally unbelievably fat person. I say that because the Hulk is apparently in the process of removing the pants from the corpse, presumably to wear them for his iconic look. Thanks for the great fat joke, Mark. Really engaging. Through Fury, Miller then invites us to imagine what the Hulk, an uncontrollable engine of male rage, might do to the woman he perceives to have slighted him, and to her accessory male companion. This won't be the last hint at the explicit in this issue. And that tracks for Miller, who has a history of shock and awe of his own. Comics critic Colin Smith describes a particularly egregious scene in Miller's early comic The Savior in which the titular character sexually assaults a priest. In an essay on Miller's 2010 clearly made to be sold to Hollywood superhero inversion story, Nemesis, friend of the show Mars Hottentot describes the ending of the book as, quote, one of the laziest, most crass, and most professionally embarrassing ever committed by someone of Miller's stature in comics. Jan Pym, the Wasp, conveniently reminds everyone, including us, importantly, that Banner decided to turn himself back into the Hulk to give the Ultimates something to fight. It's absurd to think that Banner would consider this an acceptable line of reasoning, but it sure does remind me of the possibly apocryphal Upton Sinclair quote, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it. No reason. Jan mentions the issue's MacGuffin, a syringe filled with a Hulk antidote tipped with an adamantium-reinforced needle. And doesn't it seem just a bit short-sighted that they'd introduce a story element that could, essentially, neuter and lame duck all potential future Ultimate Hulk stories? Not that there were any. And it's not like something similar wasn't done before with that strange Hulk-killing plastic gun from the Bruce Jones run of the Hulk in the early 2000s, but I'm getting off topic. The team learns that Thor won't help them in this fight unless President Bush doubles the international aid budget. And don't you worry, we're going to get into that later in the episode. A genuine thank you to Mark Miller for blessing me with such fertile content soil. I have to prepare you all for what's coming. Last episode was particularly comics-heavy. This one absolutely will not be. This issue has very little dialogue, relatively, and tons of action. And the subject matter we're going to cover isn't all that easy to process. On this same page, Tony Stark, a.k.a. the robotically armored Iron Man, throws away a line of dialogue that I find to be actually quite apt in a way that I'm sure he didn't mean for it to be. After learning that Thor won't be joining them, he says, wonderful, so we're effectively on our own out here, right? Captain America gives him some trite reassurance that doesn't matter. Now, I know what Tony means. They don't have superhero backup. But it's still hard to consider them being effectively on their own when they have thousands of S.H.I.E.L.D. agents, logistics experts, and medical technicians at their disposal. Where they and the rest of New York are on their own is very much in the aftermath of a disaster like a Hulk attack. Or possibly like a hurricane. This evening, you can see it swirling right over my shoulder here, what's being called a superstorm tonight. Hurricane Sandy is more than 200 miles off the coast and is about to crash into two other systems when it makes landfall. Widespread flooding is the biggest concern in the nation's largest city as Hurricane Sandy approaches. Sandy's 14-foot surge washed into Manhattan's South Ferry Station like a tidal wave, carrying thousands of pounds of debris. I think at this point it is undeniable but that we have a higher frequency of these extreme weather situations. Although Hurricane Sandy wouldn't hit New York until a decade after this comic, we can use it to illustrate what is very likely to happen to New York 
after the Hulk gets through with it here. On October 28, 2012, Hurricane Sandy became the largest hurricane ever recorded in the Atlantic Basin to slam into New York City. Thousands of homes and businesses were destroyed. Lower Manhattan was flooded. Transportation infrastructure was damaged beyond reasonable repair. The city's vital infrastructure, its underground subways, crippled. More than nine million people lost power. With so much suffering driving the urgency of huge rebuilding efforts, one would think that a government, quote, of the people, by the people, and for the people, would be ready to step in and help the people by coordinating an adequate response in a timely manner. The truth is, the U.S. government is ready for such disasters, just not to aid the people hurt by them. We don't need some vast conspiracy to say, oh, th th that these crises are being deliberately planned and created so that they can be exploited. In an economic system requiring constant growth, any opportunity to make the most profit with the least cost is going to be taken. In fact, the only lights are the headlights of the Con Ed trucks frantically trying to restore power. As they work through the night, which may be fitting for a city that never sleeps. I'm Juju Chang for Nightline in Manhattan. The United States is a bourgeois government. Remember, that means it's a government run by and for the people who purchase the labor of others to make profits for themselves. Thus, it encourages and rewards this profit-seeking behavior. Disasters, natural or contrived, present some of the most fruitful opportunities for profit. In 1982, Milton Friedman, one of the most prolific contributors to modern neoliberal theory, wrote in an essay, quote, only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. That, I believe, is our basic function, to develop alternatives to existing policies, to keep them alive and available until the politically impossible becomes the politically inevitable. Naomi Klein, journalist and author of the incredible and nauseating book, The Shock Doctrine, wrote in 2012 that just three days after Hurricane Sandy, multiple capitalist figureheads wrote high-profile op-eds championing the privatization of basic services. In fact, the only lights are the headlights of the Con Ed trucks frantically trying to restore power. There were calls to do away with pro-union laws that were on New York's books. There was condemnation of the city and its residents for not embracing big box stores like Walmart. A clamoring arose from various construction interests to enact laws to enable public-private partnerships so that they could profit off the need for emergency infrastructure repair. There was even a call for full privatization of certain parts of the national insurance programs. The most egregious of all of these rabid squawkings will come back to us in later issues. In the face of potentially limitless suffering, right-wing economist Russell Sobel called for, quote, free trade zones in which all normal regulations, licensing, and taxes are suspended. You'll notice, of course, that he didn't mention subsidies, but that's a deep mine shaft that we just don't have time to prospect right now. Much like the mustard weed that leaches chemicals into the soil that prevents native plants from growing, capitalist opportunists invade the vulnerable areas and change the environments to more easily predate upon the people whose lives have been completely upended. After the 9-11 attacks, New York City pledged to revamp its fire department, and it contracted the help of McKinsey and Company a firm which researcher Duff McDonald claims, quote, helped invent what we think of as American capitalism and spread it to every corner of the world. Some fucking business, I'm telling you. The 133-page report that McKinsey released as the end product of its contract reads like corporate pablum of Mike Judge caliber with a focus on planning and management 
and an increased reliance on new technologies. Throughout the document, private responses to the attacks were highlighted, and a recommendation was even made that the FDNY and private emergency medical services collect and aggregate patient information in the aftermath of such attacks in the future. This could be a big one, boss. I don't think I have to explain to anyone listening in 2022 that a private corporation having access to your personal medical data is a scary thing, especially one you might not have granted it to, as might be the case in a large-scale emergency. Well, Charlie, it looks like Christmas in July. Then there are the general, everyday services to be considered. Why should waste management, running water, electricity, and all the basic necessities for a densely populated area not to become disease pits be run for profit? For a capitalist, I've just answered my own question. The key word is necessities. There's a shit ton of money to be made if you can secure a food or water supply so that it can't be shared, and then charge people for access to it. Same goes for sewage or waste removal. For the provision of electricity, for anything that one might consider to be a characteristic of modern humanity. When a neighborhood gets destroyed in an earthquake or a hurricane, does a construction corps employed by the government come in and rebuild at no cost to the community? No. Do construction firms like Bechtel and Floorcorp Get contracts to employ workers at sub-minimum wage to build toxic formaldehyde-lined trailers for poor people to live in instead? You better believe it. CBS News Chief Investigative Correspondent Armin Katayan spoke exclusively to two workers who helped build the trailers. They say at least one manufacturer knew they were dangerous. There are countless examples of disaster capitalism these days. Truly, too many to number. And the expansion of the list is accelerating. One can imagine Stark International swooping in to collect all those juicy construction contracts after the Hulk's rampage. He is, after all, worth $350 billion, and you don't get there by paying people adequately. I know it's taken us quite a while to get here, and I did warn you how light on comics this episode was going to be, but we're finally back to the Ultimates. The next two pages feature a gigantic close-up of the Hulk screaming and leaping away from the most recent damage he's done and directly at us. As we've seen so far, there aren't really any redeeming qualities to Bruce Banner here. He's a petty, jealous coward. He's not even a good scientist. Not only does he rush experiments and disregard God knows how many safety protocols, but testing on one's self hardly seems like a controlled study. He essentially gets called out on this too. On the next page, we see the Hulk King Kong up the side of the building that Betty and Freddy were just having a nice dinner in. In the inimitable Mark Miller style, Hulk is shouting to Betty that she belongs to Banner, but also that Banner is too much of a woman for her and maybe she would prefer to have sex with the Hulk. In so many words that, while not exactly profane, are certainly more crass. Betty calls Nick Fury and expresses that he should mobilize basically the entire military. Just as Hulk is about to declaim to Betty and all of Manhattan precisely how horny he is, a humongous hand crushes him against the steel and glass of the skyscraper. Cut to the next page. We pull out and see Giant Man restraining him and claiming that he's giving science a bad name. And all I can think about are those embarrassing Facebook pages from like 2010 to 2015 that every self-proclaimed nerd in my friends list followed, titled as some variation of, I fucking love science. Not that there's anything wrong with fucking loving science. I'm not the self-conscious gatekeeper I was years and years ago. But isn't it funny how, quote, fucking loving science usually just translated to buying a bunch of hastily manufactured stuffed toys or plastic models from fly-by-night companies with cheap labor contracts? There's also the much more sinister version of that, where large media outlets weaponize science writ large to dismiss local protests as being anti-progress, particularly indigenous protests. For instance, when the New York Times published bullshit headlines like Seeking Stars, Finding Creationism, in 2014, 
in regards to the construction of the 30-meter telescope on Mauna Kea that a bunch of native Hawaiian protesters were rightly fighting against. It's interesting that George Johnson, the journalist who penned that article, wrote another one five years prior regarding a telescope the Vatican wanted to build on Mount Graham in Arizona. The protests against the telescope array that that one was part of have been going on since the 90s, and indeed there is still legal opposition from native groups and environmentalists now. Police refuse to interfere, decent citizens up in arms, and so forth. This isn't mentioned once in Johnson's 2009 write-up romanticizing a reconciliation of science and Catholicism. Why do I bring this part up? Well, there's a popular aphorism that fascism is imperialism turned inward. This isn't an encompassing definition. I wouldn't include it in any dictionary. But the assertion applies here. If imperialism is an outside force invading and setting up systems to pillage with unconquerable inertia, then that very much includes the so-called United States invading and systematically pillaging this entire country that has never belonged to it. And much like the land back and the economic reparations that are endlessly promised yet never delivered, the United States employs a similar rhetoric of niceties when it comes to other countries they've devastated. As we'll see, though, those sweet words aren't followed by inaction, although it might be better if they were. Anyway, the Hulk breaks free of Giant Man's grip, of course, and lunges at Hank's head. He topples the enlarged scientist and begins to tear into his face, prompting Janet to scream in panicked concern. The pair of them crash into a nearby building as the Hulk expresses his distaste for Hank's penchant for making Banner seem the fool in front of his separated wife. Then the Hulk says he's going to tear off Hank's head and piss and shit in his skull. Before the Hulk can carry out his own personal evacuation plans, though, Iron Man's unmistakable blue streak of energy cuts across Giant Man as Tony Stark barrels in, tearing the Hulk from his potential victim. The two of them smash through the glass ceiling of Grand Central Station, as Miller has Tony take the time to remind us, the audience, how much of a caddish playboy he is by radioing to Fury that if he fights the Hulk for too long, the Hulk will peel Tony's armor down to Tony's G-string. It's the little details that complete the picture, you know? Taking advantage of the five or so minutes that Iron Man's attack has bought them, the Wasp mobilizes medical crews to help the fallen giant man, proving, once again, that they definitely aren't on their own down there. Cut back to Iron Man and the Hulk grappling in Grand Central. Tony's armor is running out of juice, despite him having done a total of one thing during this entire fight. Next up, it's the Wasp's turn. And let me tell you, it's infuriating. Instead of using her shrinking and stinging powers here, you know, like a superhero would, she just shows the Hulk her breasts. Based on perspective, it's impossible to tell if she's in shrunken state or not. Then how do you know she hasn't got any clothes on? I have a telescope. But it doesn't seem like the Hulk cares one way or the other. Obviously, it sucks and is beyond galling that a male writer had the idea to have a female character just strip to progress the plot, but it's made even worse here. Miller actually acknowledges the absurdity of the whole thing by having Nick Fury castigate the Wasp for doing so. He says, quote, a double PhD and the only way you can think to distract the Hulk is a Mardi Gras special? She shrugs him off and Tony, who can apparently see everything that's happening, despite having his visor off while a pit crew tends to his armor, says something gross about having slept with thousands of women. It barely even registers anymore, to be honest. At this point, I'm convinced that Tony's constant need to bring up to his teammates just how much of a sexual juggernaut he is, is really evidence of Miller's constant need to point out to us, the audience, that he's given Tony a unique and standout characterization. Turning Iron Man into a one-note canary doesn't mean you've done your homework on him, Mark. Wasp is still fleeing from the Hulk's recently realigned horny aggression, and she screams to Fury on the comms that Captain America better be ready soon, because she doesn't think her Wasp sting is going to slow the Hulk down at all. We'll come back to this. Fury relieves her, 
and then Captain America drops a tank on the Hulk from the sky. This is unsurprising, since the military budget for the US increased by $47 billion from 2001 to 2002. The next two pages are actually a pretty good fight scene between the Hulk and Captain America, which makes sense since they're the only two people in the world with super soldier serum in them. Cap pins the Hulk and is about to inject him with the antidote to the Hulk formula when the Hulk rallies and breaks both the needle and the captain's arm. If this were an interesting comic, with real stakes and character development, Miller might have taken us on a journey of recovery if Captain America himself had accidentally been injected with the antidote to the Hulk's super soldier serum-based condition. But we don't get that. Having seen the needle and the damage done, as it were, Nick Fury orders a nuke to be made ready as a last-ditch backup plan. I think we're all a little on edge from hearing about nuclear annihilation at the moment, so I'm just gonna let this dog lie. And hopefully someday someone will be listening to this podcast and not know what I'm talking about. Very hopefully. And now we come to a scene I've been itching to talk about since before starting this season. Just as the Hulk is about to crush Captain America's skull, a huge bolt of lightning strikes him from a thundercloud that appeared instantaneously. The lightning arcs unnaturally, propelling him off the prone soldier. It's actually a great panel, and you can tell that the art team really came together on it to make it something special. Fury concludes without hesitation that it must be Thor, and we're treated to the big reveal of Thor absolutely braining the Hulk with his now glowing hammer Mjolnir. Why they mention that it's Thor before showing that it's Thor, I'll never know. I mean, it's not like it was a shock, thanks to the lightning, but it still just seems out of order. And now, we have it. An aide of some sort hands Fury a memorandum or something and informs him that George W. Bush has just doubled the international aid budget, closing the circuit on the Thor is a principled leftist mercenary setup from the second page of this issue. Fury responds to the aide, quote, to think I voted for Ralph Nader. Before I get into this exchange and why Mark Miller is dead wrong to pass off Thor's demands as progressive or even helpful in the slightest, I have to take care of a bit of errata. In the finale of last season, I definitely said that Ralph Nader was a senator. He's never been a senator. He's never held any office. I don't know why I said that he did. I know he didn't. You know he didn't. We all know he didn't. I'm just a big doofus and that's that. But back to the matter at hand. What happens when George W. Bush, or any president for that matter, allocates money to be used for, quote, international aid? Primarily, it means that the president has just increased the budget for an organization you've probably heard of, especially if you follow this show's Instagram. It's called the United States Agency for International Development, or USAID. Under their Who Are We section on USAID's website, they state, quote, USAID leads international development and humanitarian efforts to save lives, reduce poverty, strengthen democratic governance, and help people progress beyond assistance. Doesn't help people progress beyond assistance sound suspiciously like Reagan's calls to end welfare, or Clinton's actual success at ending welfare by kicking lots of people off it? This tired rhetoric has been and always will be code for we're forcing people to work, or more precisely, we're forcing people to work for cheap and for us. We know that every US president since Reagan has in one way or another disparaged or dismantled social welfare. George Bush Sr. had his Thousand Points of Light nonprofit that promoted volunteerism over government spending. This was, of course, mostly funded by the federal government and only allocated 11% of its budget on social activism. Clinton literally ended welfare as we know it by neutering aid to families with dependent children and other programs. 
Bush Jr. passed No Child Left Behind in what I believe to have been a callous ploy to deny federal Title I money to, quote, underperforming public schools. Barack Obama's Affordable Care Act was deliberately crafted by the ultra-conservative Heritage Foundation to derail the possibility of single-payer health care. His home affordability modification program was a bailout for the big short bankers. All of these efforts are in service of draining the meager wealth and power from the working class to the owning class to put us in precarious financial positions with no choice but to accept shit jobs for shit pay. Now imagine that, times a billion, and you've got American foreign aid helping people, quote, progress beyond assistance. If you want to know why so many countries in the third world are so poor, just look at the history of imperialism. They weren't naturally and inevitably poor. They were made poor. Underdevelopment was something that was imposed on them. They were developing. They had wealth. Many of them had very advanced civilizations. They were forced back and plundered and impoverished. From political scholar Michael Parenti's book, Democracy for the Few, quote, U.S. aid money also subsidizes the infrastructure needed by corporate investors in the third world. Ports, highways, and refineries. U.S. non-military aid to foreign nations comes with strings attached. The food that the United States offers as aid must be produced on U.S. soil rather than in the countries that are supposed to be helped. Other aid monies often must be spent on U.S. products, and the recipient nation is required to give investment preferences to U.S. companies, shifting consumption away from home-produced foods and commodities in favor of imported ones, creating more dependency, hunger, and debt. Contracts that bolster economies foreign to whichever ones they're actually being executed in are part and parcel of a concept that theorists refer to as neo-colonialism, which is a whole huge subject unto itself. The abbreviated version is that neo-colonialism refers specifically to local or even native governments that are so subservient that the difference between their administration and that of their former colonial occupiers is immaterial. The economic systems, replete with injustices and exploitation, are still inescapable for the working class of that country. What does substantially change, though, is that a neo-colonial government gives rise to what we could call a collaborator class. As I mentioned at the top of the show, the U.S. and European powers have spent the last century or so violently stripping various countries of their economic and cultural self-determination. The latest manifestation of this is the propping of puppet governments, staffed with leaders more than happy to be on the capitalists' payroll. They facilitate the absurd foreign contracts. They proffer their country's natural resources. When local workers meet to discuss what they can do to recapture some of their lost rights to safety and fair wages, and often even the land they may have recently and mysteriously lost ownership of, these leaders send police to disrupt these efforts with extreme prejudice. In a neo-colonial empire, if you are a faithful servant of that empire, you are a comprador leader. That is, you lead your people, but you respond to what Washington wants. You say, come on in, boys, it's all yours. Take it, the, the natural resources, the oil, whatever, whatever you, want. you want. Let's take the example of Canada from episode two. Remember all those state-subsidized mining ventures they have in Africa? In 2013, Toronto-based mining company Kinross Gold fired 300 employees in Mauritania. The Mine Workers Union claimed that this action was against Mauritanian law. Laid-off miners traveled nearly 200 miles to the capital to protest outside the presidential palace. That is, until the police got there and beat the shit out of them injuring at least a dozen workers just trying to regain some sort of dignity. Continuing in the article from Pambazuka, quote, as with many other Canadian mining companies in Africa, Ken Ross has paid the country little and was accused of corruption. 
Last fall, the U.S. Department of Justice, Kinross is listed on both the New York and Toronto stock exchanges, launched an investigation into improper payments made to government officials at Kinross operations in Mauritania and Ghana. Mining Watch Canada and French anti-corruption association Sherpa submitted a long report detailing allegations of bribery and corruption to the RCMP, that's Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and called for the police force to investigate Kinross's apparent breaches of Canadian anti-corruption laws at its Mauritanian and Ghanaian mines. Adding to the Mining Watch slash Sherpa report, France's Le Monde quoted a former member of the company's African legal department saying, the level of corruption was becoming grotesque. And listen, I'm not even going to touch how the American press patronizingly and racistly reports on this sort of corruption. It's our fault, not theirs. Continuing, in March, the Globe and Mail revealed that Kinross gave a $50 million contract to a French-Mauritanian partnership, even though their bid wasn't the lowest. The Mauritanian company was owned by a former top government official, and an internal Kinross document noted the company, quote, took into consideration the stated preference of officials of the government of Mauritania that the logistics contract be awarded to the French-Mauritanian Consortium. Much like how the Canadian Investment Fund for Africa allocated Canadian taxpayer money for capital investment in extractive industries, the roads that these mining companies use, the electrical infrastructure, the shipping, every contiguous and, importantly, now privatized, industry or necessary large-scale development, they're all heavily subsidized by foreign money foreign taxpayer money. As Parenti puts it in Democracy for the Few, so-called international aid is when the poor people in a rich country give money to the rich people in a poor country. So that's basically what you can expect to happen to the doubled international aid budget stipulation that Thor is cleaving to so tightly. Listen, I'm highlighting the crimes of Canada here not to say that they're any worse or any better than the United States. Although there are material analyses to be made regarding that kind of quantification, the point of this particular example is to communicate that even a country with a polished appearance like Canada's engages in this depravity. This is a class issue. This is the ugliest definition of class warfare. This is a class of people whose money is 100% stolen from their employees. They don't do the work. They spend that obscene and ill-gotten wealth on police forces and militaries to violently suppress any attempt at changing this system. This is capitalism working at its best. This is the way the free market is meant to work. One thing I've noticed about the Ultimate's artwork is just how boxy it is. It's not exactly your typical 60s book with rigid white gutters and uniform panel sizes, but nothing ever really breaks out of the squares. The most we get is a few full-page or half-page spreads. Anyway, the rest of the page after Fury kicks himself for voting for Ralph Nader shows Thor beating the ever-loving shit out of the Hulk. And this is when we truly get to witness what it means to be, as the Hulk so often screams, the strongest one there is. For those of you who don't know, the classic Hulk becomes more powerful the angrier he gets. And he gets angry when people hit him. So battles are always interesting tests of various physical and psychological limitations. I love that Hulk so much. This Hulk smirks as he turns to look at Thor over a recently pummeled shoulder and says, Thor's hammer just make Hulk horny for Betty again, hippie. I hate this Hulk so much. He knocks Thor aside as presumably Fury explains to everyone, including us, that the Hulk apparently gets stronger when he's antagonized. 
Fury then initiates one of apparently multiple backup plans and shepherds Freddie Prince Jr. and Betty Ross into a helicopter that he then refers to as the Honey Trap. Unbelievably, the Hulk can overhear Fury radioing to the battered Captain America that the bait is in the air. He takes it. As he's climbing up the most proximate skyscraper, we're treated to a panel that should be gut-wrenching. A giant-sized close-up of the Hulk crying as rain obscures his tears and shouting, don't leave Banner alone again. I don't feel bad for Banner here. I have no sympathy for this man who has been nothing but self-pitying and egocentric. If I wanted to talk about toxic masculinity and its inseparability from the coercion of capitalism, then my friends, buddies, pals, comrades, this would be the time to do it. But I'll just leave you with this. I could be convinced of the tragic and possibly romantic intended nature of this panel had it not been for the Hulk's and Banner's previous behavior. This whole story has just been Banner designing weapons to impress his peers and wife and Hulk proclaiming how horny he is. I mean, the actual issue is titled Hulk Does Manhattan for God's sake. On a side note, I'd like to acknowledge some stellar attention to detail from listener George Koval. One of the things Banner criticized Thor for in the last issue was his, quote, trashy self-help books, which I latched onto as evidence for Thor being a surface-level leftist, an opportunist. In my more removed analysis of the line, I failed to notice that Banner might have had his own reasons for harping on that particular aspect of Thor's career. In his conversation aboard the helicopter at the Triskelion with Jan Pym in the second issue, Banner offhandedly mentions that Betty was influenced by a bunch of self-help literature. And as much as I hate to give Miller the benefit of the doubt, that does sound like exactly the kind of detail he'd deliberately include. And, you know, make of that what you will. So, Betty and Freddy are up in the air, and the Hulk leaps off the building with enough force to catch onto the open hatch of their helicopter. Thor questions Captain America's willingness to use humans close to Banner as bait, and Steve assures him that that's only if his other plans fall through. Cap then radios the Wasp and asks if she's in place. Cut to a very damp Janet clawing her way through the Hulk's inner ear, replying to Cap that she's almost there. Now, to be fair to the writing and art teams here, I had previously thought that this represented a major plot hole. How did the Wasp, who was previously seen fleeing the Hulk, end up past his eardrum? But if you look closely at the top of the page where Hulk is throttling Captain America over the radio message about Betty being in the helicopter, you actually can see the minimized Wasp about to fly into the Hulk's ear. It doesn't say a lot that I expected this to go unaddressed, but I do always want to give credit where it's due. Wasp is able to zap the Hulk's brain right in whatever lobe was needed to chill him the fuck out, and he loses his grip on the helicopter and plummets. Lucky for him, he must have returned to his puny form after hitting the ground, because a bare-ass banner wobbles up on his own two legs in the middle of the crater the Hulk left. As Captain America approaches him, Banner pleads with him for mercy. He explains that he only meant to help by bringing the team together in the face of a unifying threat. Steve reassures him that he understands, and then kicks Banner in the face, knocking him unconscious. He radios Fury and asks for an appropriately sized straitjacket. However unceremoniously, the issue ends with agents of the United States military containing a threat they created and will inevitably benefit from. Greetings once again, faithful listeners. 
I'm your friendly neighborhood announcer, Joan, standing in for Bud while he valiantly takes up arms against the capitalist threat to our planet. It's been one humdinger of a time here at the studio. The vicious brutes that passed themselves for students really did a number on the control room, and the live room, and the echo chamber. That's right, they've broken our echo chamber. I might have been able to put a stop to it had I not been grappling with our fearless leader's propensity for leaving notes and equipment lying around. In happier news, our merry band of comrades has swelled quite a bit. Our most sincere gratitude to new patrons, Weaponized Apathy, Painted Land, The Red Gobbo, Comrade Mitch, and Ezra Pound, as well as to Jake Boyle for the incredibly generous tip via our link tree on Instagram. We'd also like to extend a professional thank you to Walt Llewellyn, host of the incomparable socialist Batman podcast, The Black Casebook, for his assistance in the production of this episode. Don't forget, you yourself can ensure that Collective Action Comics will be around for as long as possible by signing up for our Patreon. Any of the four tiers will get your name on the radio. You can email the show at collectiveactioncomics at gmail.com and follow us on Instagram at Collective Action Comics or on Twitter at CA Comics Pod. That's comics with an X. And as always, tune in in two weeks for the next thrilling installment of Collective, Collective Action, Action Comics. Comics.